If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of John. I've been going through the Gospel of John. We started at chapter 2 and we're now up to chapter 4. The reason why I didn't do chapter 1 is because I didn't realize that I was going to go through the book. When I started chapter 2, I loved it so much, I said, I'm going to go through the book of John. But one day I will get through chapter 1, but right now we're up to chapter 4. And for the sake of my voice, Pastor Brian is going to come up and read the text. So if you don't mind, I don't make a habit of this, but sometimes I like when the congregation stands at the reading of the Word of God. So would you mind standing at the reading of His Word? The Gospel of John, starting in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Shechem, near the field that Jacob had given to his son. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us, a, he gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I may be, not be thirsty, or have to come here again to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on the mountain, but you say that it is in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to, to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called the Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you. And he. God bless you. Thank you, Pastor Brian. I'm battling a little cold here, so I, please bear with me. I love this, this gospel. I mean, I really love the gospel of John. I love all the gospels, 
But I guess because I'm involved in the gospel and teaching it, it's just speaking to my heart, volumes to my heart, and I hope it speaks to your heart tonight. Um, this is one of the discourses Jesus had with this woman, the woman of Samaria, the woman at the well. Um, previous discourse he had was with Nicodemus. And then the next chapter you see him have a, a discourse with the nobleman. And then after that he had a discourse with um, the paralytic. So Jesus is constantly in conversations with people, trying to win people to himself, trying to talk to people so they come to know Jesus the Messiah. Um, in John chapter 3, which I preached on the last time, we see Jesus having a discourse with a religious leader, if you remember, named Nicodemus. He basically told Nicodemus, it's, your, it's not your religious status that will grant you entrance into the kingdom of God. It's not something you do, but what God has done, Nicodemus. And he told him, unless you're born again, meaning born of water, which means spiritual cleansing, and unless, Nicodemus, you're born of the Spirit, meaning spiritual life imparted to you by the Holy Spirit, you, will, you Nicodemus, and everyone else will never enter the kingdom of God. And of course, this new covenant talk, this was new covenant talk, threw this rabbi into a tailspin. And as I was thinking about this, I realized Nicodemus went to Jesus. Jesus didn't go to Nicodemus, which is very interesting. Many of the Jews, especially Jewish leaders, rejected Christ, if you go to the previous chapters. So he probably stopped going to them. John 1.11 says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So, Jesus, so Nicodemus went to Jesus. And now the tables are turned around. And Jesus goes to a Samaritan woman. Luke 18.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He went to her. And he went to a Samaritan woman. Not only a Samaritan, and not only a woman, a sinner. She had five husbands, and living with a man who was not her husband. Before I get into the significance of this, a Samaritan sinful woman... I want to turn our attention to John's overall message of his gospel, which is found in chapter 20, verse 31. I hope I last. <laughs> John chapter 20, verse 31. This is the theme of John's gospel. If anybody asks you, well, they're not going to ask you what's the theme of John's gospel, but if, as you're studying John's gospel, know that this is the theme. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. This gospel is central to the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And that's what John says. He says that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And the application of that is if you believe in Him, you will have eternal life. And it is also significant to understand that the very hope of Messiah lies at the very heart of the Old Testament. From Genesis to Malachi, the Old Testament constantly proclaimed Messiah, the Savior, His coming. That's what the overall message was. <clears throat> From Genesis to Malachi, the Old Testament constantly proclaimed Messiah, the Savior, His coming. There was nearly 300 references to the Messiah's coming. Josh McDowell, in his book, <clears throat> New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, says, 
The Old Testament, written over a 1,000-year period, contains nearly 300 references to the coming Messiah. All of these were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and they established a solid confirmation of His credentials as the Messiah. That's, that's incredible. <clears throat> so there is an overwhelming evidence that Jesus is the Messiah found in the Old Testament. And John the Apostle understood this, and that's why he writes in verse 31, chapter 20, Jesus is the Christ. <clears throat> However, John, thank you. However, John also understood that Jesus came not only to the lost sheep of Israel, but to the pagan world, which he demonstrates as he purposely goes to the Samaritan woman. And the central point of this passage is not the woman's conversion. You know, you could read a passage like this and say, oh, if you ask, what's the main point of this? Oh, it's the woman getting converted. But that is not the central point. But Christ revealing himself as the Messiah. Remember, the Old Testament and the New Testament is about Christ. This was the first time Jesus reveals who he is. And to Israel's astonishment, to a non-Jew. Dick Lucas says the clear message is that the God of Israel apparently has wider horizons by far than the Israel of God. And Reverend Lucas also says, if this story means anything, it spells out that Messiah Jesus is now crossing barriers into a pagan world. The journey is just beginning that will take his good news to the ends of the earth. And we're going to see that and how it affects our lives. Why? God would cross the barriers into this pagan world is evident in his desire not to show partiality. See, the Jews think, thought, thought, well, you know, Christ came for the Jews. <clears throat> and he, it's obvious that the gospel did come through the Jews. They were supposed to be the lights of the world, but they failed miserably. And now God is taking his glorious gospel to the pagan world, to the Gentile world. <clears throat> By Christ going to the Samaritan woman shows his love and has no limitations and transcends all barriers of race, gender, religious tradition, and ethnicity. And this was a rebuke, this was a sharp rebuke to religious leaders, a stinging rebuke to them who rejected him after he revealed who he was. And this is actually a stinging rebuke to every religious person that refuses to come to the Messiah. This rebuke carries a sting because Jesus goes to him as a Samaritan. And we're going to get into the history of the Samaritans. It's a beautiful backdrop to this, this text. And Jews, to say the least, to say the least, despised Samaritans. The racial tension back then was as bad as it gets. It was as bad as the Ku Klux Klan hating blacks and Jews. It was as bad as Hitler hating Jews. That's how bad it was back then. The Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews. The Jew may have actually prayed, forgive us our sins, but not of the Samaritans. They also prayed, and Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. That's pretty bad. <clears throat> Let's talk briefly about the history of the Samaritans and why the hatred between them and the Jews, which is a significant backdrop to this text and other texts in the Gospels. Please don't concentrate on my struggling to talk. 
concentrate on this text because it's a beautiful text and it affects every one of our lives. First of all, this bitter rivalry between Jews and Samaritan goes back centuries and we have to know the Old Testament background on this. The history of Samaria and the Samaritans can be traced back to the division of the kingdom of Israel. If you read that in 1 Kings. David's conquest of Jerusalem allowed him to make the nation's capital and then Solomon, his son, built the temple there. We know that. David established Jerusalem and then his son built the temple there. But because of Solomon's sin of nearly 700 wives and 300 concubines, I can't even imagine two wives, never mind 700 wives. <clears throat> and I'm not saying that... Uh, I just have did I stick my foot in my mouth, Kim? She said yes. I'll hear it when we go home. My wife is wonderful. I couldn't ask for a better wife. I mean, because of me. Did I get out of it? No. Let me take some water. Well, anyway, because of Solomon's sin which led him to worship of other gods. He, he married pagan wives and had 300 concubines that were pagan. It led him into to, to, uh, idolatry and led him away from his God. And through a series of circumstances which included Jeroboam and Solomon's son, Rehoboam, Israel was split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. Eventually, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel, were conquered by Assyria and deported from their own land to Assyria. You had Syria, and the Jews were in there. Now Assyria comes down, captures them, and deports them back to Assyria. Not all of them, but most of them. And these pagan... And many pagans were moved into the land where the Jews were deported from. The land called Samaria. In other words, the king of Assyria deported some pagans because he didn't want uh, the Jews to reestablish themselves, the Jews that were left in Samaria. So he deported some pagans into the land so they wouldn't get reestablished. <clears throat> so now you had Jews in, the Jews that were left in Samaria and non-Jews. And these pagan foreign non-Jews began to intermarry with the Jews who had not been deported and formed a race called the Samaritans. That's how you got the Samaritans. And these pagans did bring their idolatrous religion with them. And they became intermingled with the true worship of God. Eventually the Samaritans did away with their idolatrous worship <clears throat> and worshiped God alone. However, after their own fashion. Oh, they believed in the Pentateuch, the five uh, books of the Hebrew Scriptures, but that's all they believed in. <clears throat> And they didn't worship God in Jerusalem, but Mount Gerasim, where the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. They formed their own worship in Mount Gerasim. And when the Jewish exiles began to return to rebuild the temple under Ezra and Nehemiah, the Samaritan wanted to help. They wanted to help rebuild the temple, but the Jews blatantly, blatantly refused. And you can read that in Ezra 4. And this enraged the Samaritans. They were angry at this, and they became not just enemies, but bitter enemies, and that's how it really started the feud. <clears throat> so because they were banned from worshipping in Jerusalem, 
They built their own temple in Mount Gerizim and worshipped there. But to put salt on an open wound during the intertestamental period <clears throat> between Malachi and Christ coming, the 400 years, the 400 silent years, but we know God wasn't silent, His hand was still moving. During the intertestamental period, the Jews destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim. So to say the least, there was a deep, deep hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. To show you how deep this, this hatred was in the apocryphal book of Ecclesiasticus. It's, a, it's not one of the inspired books, it's one of the apocryphal books. The writer in the 50th chapter, in the 25th and 26th verses, expresses this scorn and contempt for the Samaritans. He says, <clears throat> There be two manner of nations which my heart abhorreth, and the third is no nation. They that sit upon the mountain of Samaria, and they that dwell among the Philistines, and that foolish people that dwell in Sikkim. Or another way of saying it, the stupid people living in Sikkim. That's what they were calling them, stupid people. Wow, that was a lot of tension there between the Jews and the Samaritans. And to compound this biblical scenario, the Samaritan that Jesus went to was a woman. Okay, She wasn't only a Samaritan, but she was a woman. The disciples actually were astonished when she came back to see Jesus speaking to a woman. A Samaritan woman like the Gentiles were considered to be in continual state of ritual uncleanness. And men generally would not discuss theological issues with a woman. <clears throat> the disciples were astonished when they came back and saw her speaking to Jesus. Women were views that, viewed as a very low on the social scale, of the Jewish scale. They were just, they were despised. As for a Samaritan woman, well, they're just half-breed. That's what they considered them. And to top it off, this woman was not only a Samaritan, she wasn't only a woman, she was a sinner. Five husbands, and now living with a man in sin. <clears throat> the Pharisees constantly criticized Jesus for associating with sinners. <clears throat> Matthew 9, verses 10 and 11 says, And as Jesus reclined at the table, in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. <clears throat> and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So I think you could say with me, Houston, we have a problem. A Samaritan, the Jews hated Samaritans, a woman who was not well esteemed, and a sinner. The Jews thought they were better than all three. A sinful Samaritan woman, but her life is to be changed like never before. Amen. She's about to meet the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus the Messiah, the Savior. Unlike the Jewish leaders, Jesus was not afraid to break social barriers in his pursuit of his mission. He came to seek and he came to save the lost. And this section we look at now, <clears throat> we once again find Jesus in a conversation, and this time with a woman. It was a great contrast between chapters 3 and chapter 4. Remember chapter 3? 
Jesus converses with all, a Jewish leader, a theologian, a Jewish male of good reputation. Now in chapter 4, the contrast is significant. An immoral woman, uneducated, where Nicodemus knew Jesus was a teacher sent by God. She had no clue who he was. No, no whatsoever. He was wealthy. She was poor. She was a social outcast. Nicodemus was outwardly squeaky clean. She was despised. She was a despised human being. Yet both needed Christ. Amen. I love when I talk to people. And you tell them your background. You say, well, I was an alcoholic. You know, I lived a sinful life and I came to Christ. And they, and, and almost, especially religious people, inevitably say, well, you know, that's good for you. You know, you needed, you had problems in your life. And, you know, Christianity is really, what they're really trying to say to me is, Christianity was a crutch. It's a crutch for you. But then I'll always use a friend of mine, Nancy Leatzis, who was a good woman, didn't smoke, didn't drink, didn't have sex before marriage, was pursuing a, a career of, of opera, was studying with one of the best opera teachers, I believe, in America. And yet she'll tell you, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. She'll be the first to tell you, I'm a sinner just like everybody else. Let's look at the setting. Let's look at verses 1 to 3. Now when Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was, make, um, was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And we know from the last message that John's popularity, remember when I spoke on John the Baptist, his popularity was, was fading, and Jesus was growing. Remember he said... He must increase, and I must decrease. And both John and Jesus were being scrutinized by the religious leaders because of the growing popularity, and the Pharisees no doubt resented it. John and Jesus had a very distinct message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this was very different compared to the religious leaders' message. But Jesus' popularity was growing beyond John's by God's providence. <clears throat> and the Pharisees, because of this, took special notice of them. And since Jesus was working on the Father's timetable, he knew, his, he knew how his ministry would end. Until his appointed time, <clears throat> he withdrew from confrontation and conflict with the Pharisees until his hour. It wasn't yet time to confront these Pharisees, these leaders, and openly be persecuted by them, even to the point of death. It simply wasn't his time. So he left Jerusalem and traveled north to the region of Galilee. <clears throat> and verse 4 says, and this is significant, he had to pass through Samaria. Jesus could have traveled to Galilee three ways. He could have went the coastal way. He could have went the eastern way through Perea, a Gentile area. Because Galilee was here, Samaria was here, and Jerusalem was here. Whenever the Jews came back to, to the festivals, the Jewish religious festivals, if they were in Galilee, they didn't go through Samaria. Why? Because they hated Samaritans. So they would either go 
to the west coast by the Mediterranean Sea, or they would go through Perea, which is basically a Gentile area. <clears throat> but he says he had to. He could have taken he, he could have taken a, a more direct route, and that's what he did. He took the most direct route. Most Jews, like I said, took other routes. Why? Once again, because of the hatred of Samaritans. Now, a lot of the Jews would travel through Perea, the Gentile area, because in their minds, well, the Gentile is not as bad as a Samaritan. So it was the lesser of the two evils. They would rather travel through a Gentile area than Samaritan. But Jesus, the scripture said, had to pass through Samaria. <clears throat> had to is from the Greek verb day, meaning it was necessary that he pass through Samaria. And John frequently used this verb, had to, to speak of Jesus fulfilling his mission. God the Father gave him. So when we read, he had to pass through Samaria, we understand <clears throat> he went this way, not to save time. He didn't go that way to save time but for a divine appointment with the Samaritan woman. <clears throat> and verse 5 says, And as he traveled north to Galilee, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his, to his sons, Joseph. And we don't know the exact location of Sychar, but it was in the we know that it was in the district of Samaria, near the field which Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. And we know from Genesis that Jacob bought a piece of land near the Old Testament city of Shechem, not far from Sychar. Genesis 33, we see that. And then before Jacob died, he left that property to his son Joseph in Genesis 48. Also, we know from Joshua 24:32 that Joseph was buried there. So what we would take as a verse that has no real significance in this story actually has great significance. It was familiar and important location to the Jews and the Samaritans. First of all, verse 6 says, Jacob's well was there. Nearly 2,000 years after Jacob dug this well, it was still there to provide water for the master's thirst. And by the way, the precise location has been well established by many scholars and architects, archaeologists. And this well sits today near an unfinished Orthodox church. And many pretty much unanimously agree that this was the well that Jesus sat near and, and drank water from. So today it's nearly 4,000 years old and still providing water for people's thirsty needs. Except Jesus is greater than Jacob's well. Amen. And verse 6 continues to say, Jesus wearied as he was from his journey was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour in Jewish time is about 12 o'clock. So at 12 noon, Jesus plopped because he was tired by the well. Now we're coming to a section, if I'm not careful, I could spend three messages on this text. One of the great, great mysteries of the scripture is the revelation of Jesus Christ as 100% God and 100% man. It's called a hypostatic union. Say that with me. Hypostatic union. It's a theological term that means we're going to be we're getting ready to celebrate Christmas, right? 
That was the hypostatic union. Jesus Christ came as man. And He was together with the divine nature. It was the union of the divine nature and the human nature of Christ. That's called a hypostatic union. That Jesus is not 50% man and 50% God. He's 100% man and 100% God. And that's one of the great mysteries of the Bible. Impossible to the natural man, but all things are possible to God. <clears throat> and some take this and other texts, like it that speaks of Christ's humanity, and here it speaks of Jesus Christ being tired and thirsty. And they twist it to say, Jesus is not God. God doesn't get tired. He doesn't get weary. He doesn't get thirsty. God doesn't do any of these things. That's what they say. And I just recently heard a Christian, well, I don't call him a Christian because I don't believe he is a Christian, but saying how he was saying, to, and, and a lot of Christians are following this man, they're saying how Jesus, he, said, he actually said, Jesus Christ is not God because he got tired, and he used various Old Testament scriptures. And what they fail to see is whether deliberately or ignorantly is these passages which speak of his divinity. In other words, there's passages that speak of Christ's divinity, but there's also passages that speak of his humanity. And this is one passage that speaks of Christ and his humanity. He got tired. Unless Jesus Christ became a man, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, he could have never performed and did his messianic work on the cross for you and me. We wouldn't be sitting here. Gerald Borchett says, <clears throat> it is absolutely crucial to recognize that all the gospel writers were fully aware of the humanity of Jesus. The strategic Christian doctrine of the Incarnation is not merely a theological assertion about the deity of Jesus. It is equally a theological assertion about His humanity. Heretical tendencies result when either element is omitted or submerged. Jesus was really a mortal who experienced bodily weaknesses of being human, even though He did not suffer the human curse of sin. So to say Jesus is not God is heretical. To say he was not human is heretical. Most people today say they'll deny his divinity. It was back in the second century where they were denying his humanity. But either way, it's her heretical. But John's Christology in this gospel does not emphasize one dimension of Jesus at the expense of the other. He clearly will show Jesus' divinity and Jesus' humanity. I thought that was important because <clears throat> even though it's not the main part of this text, we're just inundated in the church of Jesus Christ with all these false teachings going around and Christians are saying amen, amen, amen. Let's look at the woman. And now the scene is set. Jesus is at the place which was appointed. By the way, think about this. It was appointed by Him before the foundations of the world. Jesus Christ always was. He just took a, a human body, frail humanity, covered himself in it. But he appointed that woman to be there from before the foundations of the world. And he's tired and weary and thirsty and sits by the well and comes in contact with a Samaritan woman. <clears throat> Verses 7 to 9 says, <clears throat> A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said, well, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, 
How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Am I doing okay? Okay. Many believe this woman came at 12 noon, where the other woman doing the same chore would have come earlier or later to avoid the hottest part of the day. That was the hottest part of the day. And plus the wells that were closer. Why? Why on earth would a woman come this far by a well at the, at the, to do her chore at the hottest part of the day? Probably to avoid public shame. She had five husbands and was now living with a man. To avoid public This was shameful, even in the Samaritan world. But her life is about to change. She's about to meet the one who would have a shame nailed to his hands and his feet. She's about to meet the one whose blood will wash away her sin and her shame. When I was reading this, I was brought to tears. How gracious, how gracious the Savior is. And how, how not partial He is. And how not prejudiced He is. And how He took steps to cross the borders, the boundary lines. She's also about to meet the one who sent His disciples to the town to get food so He can have a face-to-face encounter for the one he set out to save. Jesus is crossing many boundaries here. He's getting ready to converse with a woman, which means which men really do in public, even if it's their wives. Single men are never to speak or to touch a woman at any time in that culture. And rabbis, that's what Jesus was called, a rabbi. That's what they considered him. They would observe these ideals all the more. He's in, a, he's in Samaria talking to a woman alone. Jesus crossed boundaries which is unheard of. <clears throat> I want to get passionate. But I can't. <laughs> so I'll get passionate in my heart. I hope you get passionate with me about these, this text of verse, this text of scripture, because it's beautiful. And that's why in verse 27 when his disciples came back from the town it says, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. Greek word for marveled was thalmazo, which means wonder. They were amazed. God from all eternity planned this woman's salvation. And they were wondering, why? how could you be talking to a woman of Samaria, of Samaria to boot? I'm going to have to end over here, <clears throat> explaining the text. Next time I speak, I'm going to get into the rest of the text. About his continual conversation, about his, uh, how he was offering her eternal water, living water. But she just understood, you know, regular water. She wanted water. She said, Keep, Give me that water so I don't have to come back and get thirsty anymore. He didn't understand that, she was talk- that he was talking about eternal life. And then when he tries to tell her that, she starts getting religious on him. Well, you come back in a few, few weeks at the end of the month and I'll tell you the rest of the story. But before we conclude, 
I want to explain the point of this text, in part in its application to the 21st century church. The main point of this text really is not about the Samaritan woman, but about Jesus revealing himself as Messiah, which I will speak about more at length the next time. However, another theme I'd like to talk about in my conclusion is evangelism, and specifically crossing boundaries in our evangelism. Now here's what we're going to... This is where this text really hits home to all of us. This is not simply a story of a woman who meets Jesus and he reveals her sin and offers her living water and so she comes to faith in Christ. It's far more than that. Jesus has a minimum heart that overcame boundaries. He traveled to Samaria where people were very hostile toward Jews and he stops and talks with a Samaritan woman a woman of a sinful reputation. Dr. Gary Berg says, John 4 challenges us to take a risk, to examine the margin of our world and cross them. I am impressed that the trip, a trip to Samaria, meant nothing short of risk for Jesus. Throughout redemptive history, true believers in Christ cross boundaries. Even in the Old Testament, we see these boundaries crossed. 1 Kings chapter 17, we see the prophet Elijah during a great famine. He didn't go to the Jews. He went to a Gentile woman of Zarephath. There was a great famine in the land. He goes to her and does a miracle with her so she could have food for her and her son and then raises her son from the dead. She was a Gentile. Elijah crossed the boundaries. And then in 2 Kings chapter 5, we see Elijah, Elijah not sent to lepers in Israel, but to a Gentile, named the, name the Syrian. He didn't go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He went to a Gentile. He healed him of his leprosy, not the others. There were plenty of lepers, in, 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 uh, plenty of Jewish lepers. Why did he go to a, a Syrian? And when we get to the New Testament, we see the disciples struggling with this. With crossing boundaries. <clears throat> Look at Luke 9, 51 to 56. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's talking about Jesus. And he sent messages ahead of him who went and entered the villages of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went to another village. <clears throat> James and John, they were the apostles. They were nicknamed sons of thunder. They were two brothers that had crazy tempers. They did not understand yet that Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost. Not to destroy lives, but to save lives. And interestingly, the same John, along with Peter, a few years later, went through Samaria preaching the gospel. Acts 8, chapter 8, verse 5. I don't know how many of you heard of Jim Elliot. He was a great missionary in, in, the, in, the, in the 50s, and 1950s. And to make a long story short, it's such a, if you ever get a chance, read his story. 
there was a tribe in Ecuador called the Kua Indians. And he, his wife, and five other couple missionaries went there. And they wanted to share the gospel with the Akua Indians, who never had contact with outside life. They were a murderous and a brutal tribe. To make a long story short, <coughs> they went there. The wives were in the camp. He went with the, with the missionaries. And they were really... They, they, they did a slow procedure. They would... Um, through the um, helicopter, the plane, whatever they went, they were dropping gifts to them and, and saying things in their language. They studied the language for a while. They really wanted to bring the gospel to them. And so they got to, to, to meet them a little bit. You know, it was very slow, but they, they began to it seemed, seemingly win, win, win their trust. And then finally, when they thought they won their trust, Jim Elliot radios his wife, he said, we'll see you in three hours. But three hours never came for Jim Elliot because him and the, he and the other missionaries were speared. They speared them and macheted them and they found their bodies down the, um, the river. And a few years later, Jim Elliot's wife went back with the daughter and other missionaries to the Okua tribes and shared the gospel with them. And many of them came to Christ. Why? Because Jim Elliot wasn't afraid to cross the boundaries. He wasn't afraid to go to a place where he was going to get possibly killed. Where is your Samaria? Where is my Samaria? Let me ask you this question. Are there any prejudices which control the sort of people with whom you share the gospel? There are prejudices in our lives. We have to be careful of. By the way, because Jesus crossed the boundaries, not only did a Samaritan woman's life change, many Samaritans of her town changed as a result of the woman's testimony. Listen to verse 4, verse 42. Chapter 4, verse 42. After the woman went back to her town, she told them, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. And they came back to see him. And they said to the woman, It's no longer what you said that we believe, for we've heard it for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed is the Savior of the world. This Samaritan woman, along with many people of the village of Samaria, became witnesses of identifying Jesus as Messiah and the Son of God. <clears throat> I love when I see new converts, new Christians, who simply understand he or she is forgiven. And they see the commands and simply obey the commands of God. They tell everyone about Jesus. There's no theological boundaries. There's no ethnicity boundaries. There's no racial boundaries. There's no gender boundaries. And I'm not saying it's not important to, to have the gospel right. It's important. I'm saying sometimes the gospel can't be simple. And when it's simple, sometimes you, if, if you make the gospel simple, sometimes it'll be easier to cross those boundaries. We need to bring the gospel to everyone. Listen, I'm as human as you. And sometimes I see people, and I know the Lord is, is leading me to that person. But sometimes in my mind, in my heart, I'm saying, Lord, I can't. I can't. I don't want to. This person, whatever the reason is, I don't want to witness to them. But I find out when I obey Him, it's the very person that needs the gospel.
We need to bring the gospel everywhere. I don't believe God is going to fill this church up. I believe we are His hands. We are His feet. We are His mouthpiece. We cannot be afraid to evangelize. This is a story of Jesus crossing the boundary lines, not being prejudiced, going to anyone He could to share the gospel with them. We have to cross the lines, the boundary lines, whether we feel it or not. Muslims need Christ. Jews need Christ. Blacks need Christ. Whites need Christ. The Irish need Christ. Catholics, Hindus, Buddhists, you name it, they need Christ. Homosexuals need Christ. Murderers need Christ. Liars, thieves. Oh, but John, I can't tell certain people about Jesus to bite my head off. Well, good. You'll be the first heavens evangelist. <laughs> we are Christ's hands and feet. We are to tell it on the mountaintops. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14, 16, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, <clears throat> so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And then Romans 10, and I'll conclude with this. <clears throat> How then will they call upon him in him, on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Listen, I want everybody to listen to me. The gospel is not going to be preached by an angel. Jesus Christ is not coming here to preach the gospel. He's come already. We are His hands. We are His feet. We are the body. Do you love people enough? Are you glad that someone may have crossed the boundaries with you? And share the gospel with you. Don't be afraid. Paul told Timothy, God didn't give you a spirit to fear Timothy, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And then Jesus, when he gave the Great Commission, said, He said, Go make disciples. Because the implication is you gotta make converts first, and then we disciple them. But he said at the end of that passage, he said, I'm with you always to the end. When you cross the boundary lines, Christ promises to be with you. Don't be afraid. Go tell all people, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Messiah. He is Savior. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you sent your only Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that He crossed the boundary lines, not just with that Samaritan woman, Lord, but with us. With us. We were sinners, not worthy of heaven. And Jesus Christ came as a man and suffered and died at the hands of sinful men that He's created. Thank you for crossing those boundary lines for us. Help us to be eternally thankful for this. And help us, Lord, not out of duty, not out of condemnation, not out of fear, but out of gratitude to cross the boundary lines and go tell people about Jesus. In your name we pray.